You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now, we've all been there before, trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife. This is where Outdoor Edge really steps in. With the Razor Safe system, you can have a brand new razor sharp blade with just the push of a button. No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30. That's N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off of your purchase. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ohio Huntsman Podcast. And today we're talking about science, really. Things that uh, until recently were science fiction. So scientists were actually able to clone a deceased black-footed ferret in order to help bolster the the small remaining population of black-footed ferrets. And so we get into that conversation. What does that mean for other wildlife? What does that mean for other either already extinct populations or populations of animals that are are weakened or, or low numbers or have gone through some sort of population level bottleneck in the past what does that mean what are you know some of the concerns uh, who makes the decisions on when and if we should be intervening lots of different things to explore with this one so that's what this week's episode is about but before we get into that i want to talk about our sponsor mastin's deer sense so Mastins has been making deer scents from the beginning. They're also getting into predator scents. So you've got standard liquid scents. You've got scented gel crystals. We've used their, their double scent stacker, which allows you, as the name implies, to sort of stack or layer scents. So you can put a liquid scent in the tray above and then you use one of their, their scented candles below it to heat that scent and it gives you two scents at once it warms the scent so a lot of cool things going on there so check them out mastinsdeersense.com you can browse around check their prices which are always really good and then order directly from their website and they'll ship it right to your house so with that let's get into the discussion 
Welcome to the Ohio Huntsman Podcast, where three brothers, Jason, Jacob, and Jeff, discuss all things hunting in Ohio. Our goal is to be your source for accurate and reliable hunting news and conservation issues in the great state of Ohio, as well as some fun and interesting conversations along the way. This is the Ohio Huntsman Podcast. Are you listening? All right, so today we're talking about something more in the science realm, I guess you would say, that that could or, or does have some potential implications for outdoorsmen and women, people that, that enjoy the critters that we run across in the outdoors. And so Jeff brought this to, to our attention. And Jeff, jump in here wherever I uh, go wrong. But apparently they have been able to successfully be, is it clone a black-footed ferret? Clone, yeah. And black-footed ferrets are extinct? They are in danger. So black-footed ferrets um, at one point in time were believed to be extinct. Um, They were classified as extinct um, in the late 70s. Um, and they were believed to be extinct until one day a rancher's dog brought him back a recently deceased black-footed ferret. Okay. And the rancher identified that, like, hey, I'm pretty sure that this is, you know, not something that, you know, is normal. Like, you know, and kind of asked someone they said well that sure sounds like it's you know this extinct ferret species right the only native ferret to north america you know because the two options were like did he did my dog find someone's pet that got loose and you know wandered across the prairie in wyoming or you know did i Basically, did he find some rare species? Right. So then what they did after they identified this population was they went out and captured almost the entire population of black-footed ferrets in that region. Put them into like a breeding facility to try to recover this species and they they found a few other sparse populations after this finding this first one in wyoming but in the captive breeding program only seven of the ferrets uh ever actually bred i only you know how out of how many um i don't uh, but seven was a very small portion of them. I know that. Okay. And so, yeah, all black-footed ferrets that are alive today are descendants of these seven ferrets. So that's oh, a okay. a really uh, tight bottleneck, you know, this species has gone through. You know, there's not a lot of genetic diversity. Um, right. But the San Diego Zoo 
has a program that uh, you know a lot of people call it you know kind of colloquially like the Jurassic Park program um they collect and store samples of animals mostly endangered species they well, like collect genetic, genetic samples or, or genetic samples yes okay and they had a genetic sample from a female ferret that died in the late 80s and they were able to and right now the the ferret population um you know the black-footed ferret population estimates vary from somewhere in the realm of like 600 to 1200 individuals in the in it's the hard. wild yeah in okay. well yeah in the wild and in captivity okay um but yeah they they range from like 600 to 1200 um it's hard to get a good uh good number good estimate because they're actually a very short-lived animal um and what drove them to be extinct um or near extinction there's a little bit of controversy over but basically black-footed ferrets eat prairie dogs exclusively like that's like 98 percent of their diet okay. is eating prairie dogs so some people say it was just the decline in prairie dog populations you know we were as humans prairie dogs were a nuisance so we went and killed them all and then the ferrets had no food um some people argue that we poisoned the you know even today poisoning prairie dogs is still pretty commonplace um so some people argue that we poisoned the prairie dogs that poison got into the ferrets they were eating the dead fairy dog or prairie dogs and the ferrets died from that so there's hmm. some some controversy there as to what exactly caused the decline or debate i shouldn't say controversy but debate but yeah so they were able to clone uh a female that had died in the late 80s and this female was not one of the original seven that were able to breed so just by cloning this one individual getting this one individual to potentially contribute back to the gene pool you're increasing diversity quite substantially right yeah you know so it's pretty exciting stuff it's pretty uh cutting edge um but it also kind of brings up those questions of at what point do human you know are we going too far you know is this playing god it kind of you know brings up a lot of hypothetical questions and it's a first step to potentially some major conservation efforts that could take place with other species now at this point so right they to that point right it sounds like they could potentially use this same method for other species that are 
you know, where their population numbers have dwindled significantly and, you know, their, their genetic diversity and therefore the robustness of the species is getting very slim, very narrow. That seems certainly doable. They've done it. Right. Uh, is there any talk or does this also lend the ability to possibly bring back species that have already gone extinct? I mean, this is definitely a first step and the concept of de-extinction is uh, a real concept. It's a real thing that is talked about and written about in the uh, biology books. Well, yeah, Jurassic Park books, <laughs> yes. But also, I mean, in in the biology community, ecology community, um, you know, there's people talk about this. This is stuff that, you know, has been theorized and studied, like, can we do it and should we do it? And uh, this is just one step closer to us really being able to do that and makes the questions of should we do it even more important you know it's a more right. important topic to really talk about yeah it because it it brings up i mean just sitting here thinking about it it brings up a lot of questions right like <sighs> Just because something went extinct, you know, if it went, if it went extinct for, you know, with, with no help of humans, is that something that, uh, should be brought back just because we can, right? That's right. That's one well, question. All right. And another kind of, another argument is, uh, cheetahs have gone through a very tight bottleneck in in history um there's not a lot of genetic diversity in cheetahs okay um but that bottleneck happened before human interference so it's that's another kind of hotly debated thing is well should we try you know should we invest in trying to save cheetahs and you know prevent them from ill ill effects from this bottleneck or is that us playing god you know are we artificially keeping cheetah populations alive when we really shouldn't be because they naturally you know have this bottleneck so how do we know that they went through a genetic just because when we look at genetic samples from the cheetahs that are alive today, they're all very similar? Or how do we know that they went through, if it was before humans? Yeah, we know because of when we look at genetic samples, they're all very similar. Okay. Um, cheetahs are almost, I mean, they're, they're very similar to clones of each other. Okay. You know, they're, they're genetic. They have very, very little genetic diversity. So at some point in natural history, the the cheetah population was knocked down to 
a very limited number of individuals. You know, I I've heard estimates of, you know, very small numbers, you know, like 10. And I've heard like 50 to 500 even. Okay. You know, so we're not real sure how small it got. But yes, the cheetahs went through a bottleneck in in history but almost everyone agrees that that bottleneck occurred before human interference we didn't do it something else caused that bottleneck hmm. yeah boy that is uh right do we do we only fix the things we caused or because we can fix it do we fix it and i mean we can't create diversity really i mean we can try by breeding you know selective breeding but uh, you know we can't really create diversity yet right yet yeah because absolutely we could at some point genetically engineer diversity into cheetahs right also my question I said, my question is, if this bottleneck occurred before human interaction, that to me indicates that this bottleneck had to have happened hundreds to thousands of years ago. So is the cheetah really so far off? Like, are they bad off? They're still alive. Right. Yeah, they're. Do they really need us to fix it? They're not going to go extinct. You know what I mean? Like if it happened before human interaction or not. The argument is really that there was no human element to it. It had to have been a long, long time ago. Right. Um, I mean, the problem is that they become very susceptible to disease. Right. You know, a a virus that will affect one will affect the next one almost exactly the same. You know, so if it's a deadly virus, it'll kill them all. You know, very none of them will have the diversity to overcome it. Yeah. Well, and then that isn't that kind of the argument with the goats out west, or not goats, sheep, bighorn sheep and stuff. They're just because they're so, I guess, small pockets. They get that. What is that? Pneumonia or something? They get. Yeah, from the the. Uh captive sheep industry right right yeah that's what that's what they blame it on yeah it's domestic domestic sheep population that's the word i was looking for yeah well and i mean another example of us kind of tampering with things to kind of make things better is there's very few purebred american bison um most of them have cattle DNA. You know, they're actually like somewhat beefalo. Even the ones that are quote unquote wild, we, in order to keep the population, we bred them, you know, bred some cattle DNA in there. Okay. So there's very little purebred buffalo. I mean, there are some. But a lot of times when you see a buffalo, it's like, 
oh, cool, that's a buffalo. Well, not so much. It's actually this hybrid species that is mostly buffalo, but it's got some cattle DNA in there. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the argument there would be you could use this technique to create more pure buffalo. Yeah. Yeah. This could be done again. Yes. To create more purebred buffalo, actually a hundred percent buffalo. You know, if, if we have the genetic samples, you know, of ones that have, you know, died in the past. Um, Another sort of thing where this could affect us here in Ohio is uh, the, the blue pike, which was a fish species in Lake Erie um, that didn't go extinct all that long ago. Um, I think they were officially declared extinct in like 75, 1975, around then. Um, so, and there, there is genetic samples for those. Um, there's been studies done to determine, because there's debate, it's hotly debated over whether the blue pike was actually its own species or not, or if it was just a, uh, a subpopulations a subspecies of uh yellow perch because although it's called the blue pike it's actually or not the yellow perch the yellow walleye um it's actually a walleye it's not a pike whatsoever it was misnamed huh but we could bring those back you know and even if it's just a as a novelty, we still could do it. You know, this, this, and that would be a de-extinction event. And that's if they really are a different species, because there's, there's been studies. Uh, I can't think of the professor's name, but there was a professor at Toledo who uh, did a pretty extensive study uh, into the genetics and morphology of uh, the blue pike and basically found that they weren't genetically different or different enough from walleye to really be their own species. Um, but there's, you know, more that there's more than just genetics that makes something a separate species. See, that gets you know, highly confusing for me. That there's more than just genetics? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because my understanding is the turkey species, right? They are they are all genetically the same animal, but they express different colored feathers and things like that. And so we have these different, I don't even subspecies, them, subspecies of, of yeah. turkeys in the country. Right. Is that yeah. is that correct? Yeah, there's different subspecies. Is and the oscillated or whichever one's down in Mexico, is that a different species altogether? Or is it still related? 
Because it looks way I, different. It looks way different, yeah. I don't know. Osceola, right? That's no, what we're talking about. Osceola is southern Florida. Okay. There's, there's one that it's like, it's got like blues and greens and stuff. I'm, am I thinking of that right, Jake? It's like, yeah, almost more. Yeah, it's got like, uh, like peacock esque. Yeah, yes. peacock. Yes. It looks like tropical, and it does not. Just from what I've heard, it doesn't respond to calling at all. Like yeah, it doesn't. I've... You basically have to hunt it kind of like you would hunt a deer in the sense of like patterning it knowing what trail it takes or path it takes around its daily you can't call it in like normal I can't call any turkey in but mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but the the lines I'm not sure about that one if it's a separate species or not um, but yeah the lines between what's a subspecies and what's a species are are actually fairly blurry um there's a lot of debate um over what's what um i mean because for a long time we thought that there was only well we thought that there was only one species of elephant a long time ago um but more recently we thought that there was only one species of giraffe and we only really found out that there was separate species when we tried to breed them and they wouldn't you know in captivity we tried to breed them and they wouldn't breed because they couldn't like they were two separate species and i'm not sure if that was a uh i think it was like a a sexual tradition type thing they they didn't have the knowledge of how to breed with one another genetically they could have but okay yeah genetically they could have but they have different mating rituals if you will yeah so they don't mate and that's how we discovered that there was more than one species of giraffe you know there's your I think they're called plains and jungle. I mean, that's basically the difference is plains giraffe and jungle giraffes. But yeah, this, uh, although this seems the ferret thing kind of seems like a very small thing. Um, it's, it's a step in the direction of some very interesting things that could be done. Um, for example, the elk species in Ohio, you know, the native elk species is extinct. But if we have genetic material that we could clone, while we probably couldn't clone a, you know, a whole new pure population, we could clone a few and then breed those with other elk species to kind of bring back something more similar to the eastern elk. Right. You know, and bring bring it back as much as we could. You know, recover as much of the DNA as we can of our our elk species. Are were all the elk that were on, you know, in the eastern states, Appalachian, 
mountains, were they all of this now extinct elk species? For the most part, I believe so, yeah. Um, Yes, I would say eastern United States, yes. Um, Eastern Canada may have had uh, their own separate elk species um, that still still exists, but in a much smaller pocket, like there's very little, there's very few of them left. Um, I'm trying to think, I think it's might be the Manitoba. I'm not sure what they're called, okay. but there, there is a, a, a separate elk population that lives in Canada in portions of Canada that may have extended all the way to the Atlantic ocean or partially the way to the Atlantic ocean. And then the Eastern elk kind of, you know, they, they may have kind of gotten close in their territories or even overlapped in their territories, the two different species slash subspecies, you know, depending on who you ask. Because, you know, some people say that there's only one species of elk and others say, no, there's, you know, this many, there's that many, you know, depending on whether there's subspecies or full species. See, it seems like, like, it feels like a system that was established before we had the science to really distinguish and so we're like well that one looks different so that's that's something different that's a subspecies that one grows bigger that one lives in a different type of habitat so it's it's clearly different but now we've we've evolved technology to show like well no when it comes down to its dna those two things are the same and so you run into this issue of like well we've always called it something different but uh, you know I'm not so sure it's something different right genetics really screwed up classifying you know the whole idea of classifying species because once we brought genetics into it yeah we discovered that things that we thought were very different are very similar and things that we thought were very similar are actually very different. Right. Um, and also the fact that uh, genetics sometimes steers us in the wrong direction because it's like, oh, well, these things are uh, genetically very similar. But they're actually separate species because they refuse to breed with each other in the wild in the wild like they don't have they're genetically pretty similar populations but they don't have the the knowledge to breed with each other in the wild or their Mm -hmm. their uh their ranges don't overlap so they don't breed with each other in the wild and because this also goes into polar bears you know uh, polar bears and grizzly bears are actually genetically not very different, but 
they never used to overlap each other really much in the wild. You know, their ranges didn't overlap. Well, now their ranges are starting to overlap more and more. So now what do we do? You know, genetically, they're not that different. But and now they're starting to breed in the wild together or in theory could be. You know, I don't. There's some debate over that, too, but they they absolutely could be breeding in the wild. So now what do we do? How do we classify this? Right. You know, our whole life, I mean, polar bears and grizzly bears look a lot different. Yeah. You know, and size wise, they're a lot different. Behavior wise, they're a lot different. Yeah, it's amazing how something that. It is even, I mean, even something that is genetically the same or is awfully close can can express characteristics in those genes so differently. Like, to where, I mean, even just, like, body size in white-tailed deer, right? Canadian white-tailed deer, huge bodies. Florida white-tailed deer, little bodies. You know, like, the rest of them generally looks the same. But, I mean, to that point, it's amazing how different something that should be the same can look or act. Right, yeah, yeah. Which kind of brings in the the questions, if you will, of these, you know, re reestablishing populations in area, you know, taking animals from a different area to reestablish a population right. because it's like well those aren't those aren't what were originally here even if they look the same they very well could be completely different yeah i mean you see that like in a in a dramatic sense in captive raised animals or captive bred animals versus wild you know, I mean, we see that time and time again. We're like, oh, we're going to raise a bunch in captivity and release them. And that's how we're going to, you know, I don't know that that so much happens anymore because we've learned that, like, yeah, it doesn't work. They just, they don't, you know, they can't avoid predation or they can't forage for food like they need to or, you know, it's the same animal, but it just doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, because there's, a lot of people talking about, you know, wanting to reintroduce elk into Ohio. And one of my biggest drawbacks is, you know, yes, there was elk here, but it wasn't those elk. Those elk weren't here. You know, and so is it really, are you really reintroducing a species that was already here? Or are you introducing an exotic? You know, and yeah, it's that's my biggest drawback like the the thing that really makes me as a conservationist worried about it i mean because there's other things that are also drawbacks and you know economic type things and you know socioeconomic type things but uh really as a conservationist the biggest drawback is like well 
are we really introducing, you know, reestablishing a population that was here? Or are we just putting an exotic here? I want to take a quick break here and talk about our sponsor, Monster Whitetail Grub. Monster Whitetail Grub is a deer feed company and they're an Ohio deer feed company. So they try to source everything, their ingredients, their packaging, everything from Ohio. So one, you know that your money is is staying right here in Ohio and helping the Ohio economy. And take it from us, you're getting a good product. So they've got their their Monster Whitetail Grub feed, which is a, a high protein feed. It's got mineral mixed in, which I really like. It keeps the deer coming back even after the physical feed is gone. They've got straight mineral, so I know a lot of people like to run mineral in the springtime for antler growth. They've got that. And they've also got flavored corn options, which take standard corn, which everybody knows deer like, and turns it into more of a long-range attractant with some of these flavor additives that they have. So check them out. Go to ohiohuntsman.com sponsors, and you'll find a link there to get in touch with Monster Whitetail Grub, see what they have to offer, and where you can buy the product so with that let's get back into the conversation so i guess to sort of tease that out a little bit if they because you know we have these rocky mountain elk species in surrounding states if they came here naturally would you propose to treat them as an exotic invasive or treat them as a game species i mean I, a I'm tough question. Yeah, it's very tough. <clears throat> if we ever had intentions to try to bring something back, you know, basically, you know, take samples of eastern elk and, you know, clone them and then crossbreed them. You know, if we if we ever had intentions to bring something back that was a closer match to what we had originally. I would say treat them like an exotic. But I mean, because I, I fully support the idea of like, well, these are the closest match to what we had. You know, these elk, Rocky Mountain elk or whatever elk, you know, population were are the closest match to what we had originally. So doing something's better than nothing. But if we are going to try to go down the de-extinction route at some point and bring back the the genetics of eastern elk then maybe you treat them as an exotic i mean it's basically it's just not a <coughs> clear-cut answer it's not an easy answer really right you know it's it's not it's it's not an easy decision no no it's not and it it's a, uh, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure there's probably people out there like pulling their hair out over that discussion, but maybe a, a less, um, uh, you know, they don't have eyelashes type of, uh, less charismatic species is like the, the discussion around the American chestnut. Right. I mean, I think there's a camp of people, the, the chestnuts, well, I guess they're not all extinct. There are some still some original chestnuts that somehow, you know, had some sort of genetic variation that the blight didn't kill them. Is that right? Yes, there's 
Uh, potentially, yes. And there, there are some pockets of chestnut that live in soil that hasn't been contaminated with the blight. Um, the soil is so rocky that they're the those chestnuts don't cross their root systems don't cross with the root systems of trees that had the blight okay. you know so they're they're basically on islands just instead so, of being surrounded by water they're surrounded by rock but i guess where i was going with that is like i i and it's been a long time since i looked in the chestnut stuff but i think there's a camp of people that are of the opinion until we figure out how to bring back the original American chestnut, I don't want these facsimiles that are a cross between between like the Chinese chestnut and the American chestnut. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. And we're getting, I mean, at this point, the technology or the science in the chestnut world is getting better and better. You know, every year, like we're getting closer and closer to what, you know, because originally when we were kind of replanting the American chestnut, they were like, you know, only 75% American chestnut. Right. Now we have some that are, you know, 99. And I, I think there is potentially... A, a pure American chestnut that was bred, you know, selectively bred to be blight resistant, you know, that and it it's actually 100 percent American chestnut. OK, because um, yeah, I thought I had read something where they were getting to the point where. You know, it was like 99.9% American chestnut. They had basically found the one gene or, or you know, whatever, the, the one piece of genetic code that made them susceptible to this blight. And, you know, we're figuring out how to either breed that out or, or switch that out with the Chinese chestnut gene or, or whatever. Right. So it was yeah. like basically an American chestnut. Yeah, because the... The Dunstan chestnut, as far as I know, is the gold standard right now. If you can get your hands on a Dunstan chestnut, it's, you know, that's the breed of American chestnut that is the gold standard. That's what conservationists, chestnut conservationists, want to repopulate the the landscape. And... I'm I'm not sure if it's 100% or 99 or you know 98% American chestnut um but the technology or whatever you want to call it is rapidly advancing right um the unfortunate part is chestnuts take a long time to grow to once they you know what they once were yeah, you know it's they're they're not a very rapid growing tree really compared to other forest species. Yeah, I mean my my understanding was the the eastern hardwoods were predominantly chestnut before they all died, right? I mean like now you got oaks and 
maples and beach and but my i mean i that was my understanding is like it was mostly chestnut yes yes uh oaks kind of filled the niche for chestnut trees as best as they could when chestnut trees went away i mean because we didn't we didn't do ourselves any favors i mean we cut a lot of them down too right yeah you know it's not just the blight um but we you know the blight is what really did the majority of the damage um i mean but it's the same thing you don't see a lot of old oak trees in in the woods because we cut them all down yeah you know so we didn't we didn't do ourselves a lot of favors for keeping diversity because as humans we like to use things for you know what we want to use them for that tree makes good wood we i want i want that wood that animal's tasty to eat and uh sometimes it's hard to control yourself for the greater good yeah yeah some of those old you see those old black and white pictures of just you know these guys cutting down just giant giant chestnut trees i mean nothing on the the scale of like the the redwoods or the sequoias but i mean as far as eastern tree goes i mean like big big trees yeah uh the what is that museum what's the science museum in uh columbus called crickets uh cosi (laughs) yeah no that's in that's cleveland isn't it yeah no cosi yeah it's cosi yeah okay they have a uh a giant cross section of a chestnut and you know have the rings marked like you know this is what was going on in this year you know really on the rings and it's I mean, first off, it's giant. Like, it's really cool to see just because it's so big. And then it's also cool to see, like, what was going on while this tree was growing. Yeah. Hmm. That'd be cool to see. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> for for me, because I, I went, I don't know within probably the last 10 years and that was kind of one of my highlights was seeing that yeah you know because a lot of the things you got to elbow you got to elbow the little kids out of the way to participate in yeah i mean you're bigger than them though so you can do that you just got to push them over (laughs) (laughs) no really what i thought is like when i was there it's like man I wish I brought a kid with me because then I could pretend that the kid's, you know, playing with this and I get to play. There you go. You know, because I had like, you know, the erosion table or whatever, you know, where it shows erosion. And it's like, you know, I, I tried to kind of play with it a little bit. And then, yeah, these kids just crowd you out. And it's like, oh, well, this is no fun. Like you're messing up my experiment. Right. These kids are ruining my science. <laughs> Yeah. So. But yeah, like I'm, j- I'm just sitting here thinking, 
my uh, i guess getting back to like the different species and should we help should we not should we do this should we, you know shouldn't we do this my my first reaction sort of feels like well it, it feels like on a case by case basis you kind of have to look at the you know because there's can we right and it, it's seeming more and more like we can and then what criteria do you use to decide if we should? You know, right. even if it's something that we did, like the passenger pigeon, I don't know that because my understanding with passenger pigeons is you can't have like a hundred. You have to have hundreds of thousands of them. Like that's just how their species works. And so do we in today's society have a tolerance for flocks of passenger pigeons in the hundreds of thousands descending on your cornfield. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. right. It, it, it starts to bring up lots of different sort of questions. Yeah. Well, actually the, the passenger pigeon thing, that's another interesting you know there's there's some hot debate over it as well i love hot debate because some people argue that that was just a a basically that passenger pigeon populations are cyclical you know just like any other real prey species is Mm -hmm. um but basically during european colonization in north america it was just a really huge like overpopulation and like that they basically were never what we as european settlers report was not really what they always were like oh. it was just kind of a little bit of a of a product of us clearing the land we were creating these larger and larger populations and you know and then we so we didn't really even cause them to go extinct as much as we think we did the fact that they overpopulated the way they did really contributed contributed to it and then we also had an appetite for them so every time we saw them we shot them and yeah so there's a little bit of a argument of like well is that how they were supposed to be you know because and this is you know i haven't read these documents myself or anything but uh people who've researched this say like well the native americans didn't really report these passenger pigeon flocks like this Mm. they in their writings and their history oral history they never talked about it yeah it seems like something you would talk about too i mean Right, right. If you're flocks right. of a million birds or something, you know. Right, right. Blocking out the sun. Right. And it's like, so, what? You know, was this just a freak thing that was happening while we were settling the land, or was that how it was supposed to be? Right. You hmm. know, and that's <clears throat> a lot of this. You know, I mean, when you get into things of that aren't necessarily black and white. There's a historical element. 
you know, science can't just flat out say that this is the answer. A lot of times there's people who want to argue, if you will. You know, is it a species? Is it a subspecies? Yeah. People are going to argue. You know, where they, you know, were passenger pigeons supposed to be in the hundreds of thousands and in the millions in flocks? Or was that just a a freak of, you know, freak of nature that was happening at that, you know, was that just a perfect storm? Yeah. And. Yeah. And a lot of times when it comes to the de-extinction thing. uh, It would be very hard to find enough genetic diversity to really bring a species back and be able for it to be able to really survive on its own because you're going to have these bottlenecks but you could create something that is similar you know that, that can't can, be true it just take took one mosquito on Jurassic Park <laughs> yeah uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, you could create something that's similar to, you know, that to the the human eye, maybe even, it looks similar, may even act similar, but it's not really, you know, that animal. It's a hybrid. So, I guess, to play devil's advocate, Jeff, on your eastern elk thing where do you draw the line between you know if it looks the same that's good enough that's close enough or you know what i mean like where is it where is that where it blurs it even more because like you can genetically modify you probably i don't know this probably could genetically modify an existing rocky mountain elk over time with no eastern elk dna to look more like eastern elk well, yeah, yeah. I mean, given given enough time, the Rocky Mountain elk will probably start to look like the eastern elk. Yes, I mean more so. You know, they'll they'll start to gain the habits, the morphology. You know, the physical appearance. I mean, they're not going to get all of it because that genetic material was lost in the past but they they could yes and probably would and this is given enough time i mean this is right uh, longer than we would be alive yeah. probably right you know this is probably hundreds of generations without human interference cuz yes we could absolutely selectively breed them to look a certain way you know, probably through artificial insemination, like I or cloning, because, you know, it's it's hard to tell two animals like, hey, you two are going to breed, even if you put them in the same enclosure. It can be hard. Sometimes you get kicked in the head. Right. Sometimes you get kicked in the head. That's quite. the Um, And I mean, a lot of (laughs) a, a lot of animals. Yeah. A lot of animals die breeding. You know, either trying fighting for dominance or in the actual act of breeding, they somehow get injured and, you know, die. 
Yeah. So. I, I mean, you, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but, you know, as far as like selectively breeding, right? We've, we've, whether intentionally or not, I'm sure some of it is intentionally, but like in dogs, you know, you see some of these, um, <clears throat> I've seen some of these photos of like, what German shepherds used to be versus what they are today or what like the, the bull terrier is today versus what it is, you know, what it used to be. And like uh, a lot of these uh, dogs have been bred into something. We still call them the same thing, but we, you know, we've bred them into something that at least visually, you know, when, when you look at them side by side, photos of, you know, what they were, you know, I don't know how long ago, way back in the day, but, but they look, um, noticeably different. Right. How different, like uh, what, what are the differences between the Eastern, the OG Eastern elk and the Rocky mountain elk? Um, off the top of my head, like I, I can't, you know, don't quote me on this, I guess. But I believe the eastern elk were the largest species okay. of elk in the United States. Um, I think in their antler appearance, they were a little different. Um, and I can't tell you exactly how they appeared different, but they were different. You know, their antlers appeared a little different than Rocky Mountain elk. Um, and I, their, their body size was much larger. They were the largest species of, of elk in, in North America. And I think that mostly had to do with the abundance of high quality food. You know, uh, this region of the country grows the biggest deer for a reason too. You know, it's high quality food plays a big role in that also just the necessity for sure. large body size you know due to cold winter you know yeah the colder it gets typically the bigger things get um hmm. in general that's a general rule for for mammals at least right um so it yeah but it's tough, you know, because what I, you know, in a, in a perfect world, you know, what you would want to see happen is us to bring back the exact same species slash subspecies that was here. Um, but we don't have the genetic samples to do that. Even right. if, even if we could, you know, clone them and create them, we don't have the genetic sample, you know, enough of it to do it. So what is the closest you know the next be- best thing or have we just changed the landscape too much you know should is bringing back elk just not a good idea because we've changed the landscape too much right you know they won't do well or i mean i think they would do well but is are we as a society okay with bringing back elk i mean if we bring back elk to ohio 
it it is going to happen that people are going to hit elk and get seriously injured right it, yeah it is going to happen that people are going to have their flower beds their uh their crops damaged whatever their property damaged their apple orchard you know tore up you know apple farmers orchards uh you know they complain about deer tearing up their trees yeah well if an elk gets a hold of your tree you don't have an apple tree anymore like you're not (laughs) trying to to save that tree your apple tree is gone right you know so are are we prepared to you know should we bring back you know have we changed the landscape too much it's you know i'd i'd really like us to bring something back the closest approximation of what we had um i think there's absolutely areas in the state that could have it and um the economic boost it would cause you know create would you know outweigh the negative the negatives of it you know the sure so i i think we should bring back the closest approximation but what is that you know is it the rocky mountain elk or do we wait another 10 20 30 40 50 years until we can maybe bring back some of this genetic material from a you know extinct eastern elk and you know create our own hybrid that's even closer you know closer related to what we used to have than the rocky mountain elk well my question is why I guess geographically, what is stopping the existing elk herds that now are basically all around Ohio from jumping the line, so to speak? And how far out do you think that is until elk start crossing the river? Um, geographically, there's really not much stopping them. Um, a lot of the states want to keep their elk populations pretty contained um so they have just increased tags to yes and i i know virginia if if you catch a an elk outside of its range like with the established range uh that the virginia elk population has during gun season deer gun season you can shoot it hmm like they, you know, they have this is where the elk can live outside that's of that. Probably to keep the non-elk folk happy because it can contains right. their damage and contains their right. Because yeah, almost you start every getting out of the quote-unquote elk range, it starts getting into people's flower beds. <laughs> right, right, yeah, because almost every state around us has an elk population now right. um you know i think the most likely path for a wild elk to come into ohio would probably be from pennsylvania you know that's the 
probably the closest population. Um, and, you know, because West Virginia has a established elk population now, but it's fairly small, like it's new. Um, Kentucky's is pretty big. Right. But I'm they, surprised Pennsylvania's hasn't. They must do something to contain theirs because I'm surprised it hasn't grown and moved eastward. You know what I mean? Their Pennsylvania elk population has been around probably the longest. Yeah, and, out of I think so. Yeah, and it doesn't seem to move. Yeah. So I and I, I think that that's probably, yeah. They 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 are consciously trying to contain it into a specific area. Right. Um. I don't know exactly what they're doing. I do know uh, one cool thing. When I was in college, I saw a map that showed exactly like GPS coordinates for where every elk was killed in the Pennsylvania, you know, that year in the Pennsylvania population. And that was cool to see, you know, because there's like this preserve and there was quite a few of them that were killed, like right on the line, you know, like a hundred feet, like over this line, like over there, that's a, a preserve or a state park. As soon as they cross this line, they're into state game land and they can be shot. Sounds like Cecil the Lion to me. Yeah, <laughs> potentially. <laughs> I mean, well, and yeah, I mean, that's also kind of another issue is, yeah, when you have these contained elk populations that are a tourist attraction, a lot of times those elk don't really know to be appropriately afraid of humans. Right. I mean, in Estes Park, Colorado, you know, it's a national park and a city. You know, there's very little hunting that can take place around there. I mean, those elk walk down the city street. They don't have a fear of people. Right. I'm sure if you're more out in the national forest, like, those elk know that the smell of people is danger, not just seeing people, but just smelling them is danger. And I need to get out of here. Yeah. You know, so that's, I guess, sort of the other thing is if you're looking for, for, for hunting purposes, is it, you know, how sporting is it? You know, is it something that you really want to participate in? You know, and that's a, a question every hunter's kind of got to answer for themselves. I mean, because my answer is pretty much yes. I mean, if the thing's not going to walk up to me and let me pet it, you know, I don't want to go out and shoot a cow out of someone's field. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. if it has zero fear of me, I don't want to do that. That's not sporting. But it's also pretty cool to shoot an elk. Yeah. You know, so for me, it's like, eh, while it may not be as challenging as hunting some other things, it's still a challenge and it's still good meat. You know, it's still going to taste good. Right. 
So. Yeah. It certainly raises a lot of questions that are going to have to be uh, thought about, answered as, you know, as we continue to evolve the science and, and things continue to move in this direction. So. Yeah. I mean, this ferret being cloned was just a, a big step, you know, big step towards what the future may hold and some, some ethical questions that might need to be answered in the future. And maybe the other question is, is who should be answering these ethical questions? You know, who, who's a stakeholder who gets to actually have an opinion, if you will. Yeah. You know, is this going to be something that is going to need to go to a vote? And is this something that the state should be deciding? Or is this something that the federal government needs to step in? You know, who who's going to make these decisions? Yeah. Because they could have very large, lasting, long-term effects. For sure, yeah. So. Yeah. Thought-provoking conversation, for sure. Yeah. So, I think with that, we'll shut this one off. Hopefully, uh, you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And, uh, hopefully, it got you thinking. All right, so that's it for this week. Like I said at the beginning, lots of different things to explore with this one. Um... You know, lots of potential uses for it and lots of questions, right? There, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know if moral or, or, I don't know what the word is, but but sort of tough questions that are going to need answered now that we've basically unlocked this secret, if you will. So with that, we're going to sign off. As always, I want to thank everybody uh, I really appreciate it uh, when, when you all share and, and like and subscribe to the podcast. That that really helps us out and that means a lot to us. So keep doing what you're doing. Hope you're having a good spring. And with that, we're going to sign off and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.